God, we come to the point in our service where we try our best to worship You through the preaching, through the teaching, through the proclamation of Your Holy Word. God, we ask that You would add Your richest blessings to this process, Lord. Not monetarily, not numerically, Lord, but that we would be blessed by Your Word. All of us together, God, You would speak to us through Your Word. God, Your Word is sufficient. Your Word is enough. Your Word is perfect and infallible in every way. And God, we pray, Spirit, we ask that You would move through the preaching of Your Word. That You would push a weak and frail and insignificant servant out of Your way, God, so that You might become greater. And even Bethany, our church, myself included, that we would become less as You are exalted and lifted high. God, there's so many of us that this, this morning we need encouragement and comfort from Your Word. I pray that You provide that for all of those who are in need of it. God, there's some of us that truly, Lord, we need to be convicted of our sins. Lord, we need to be brought to a place of repentance. Once again, Lord, we need to bring our sins before You and leave them at Your throne and before Your feet. And ask for You to cover us in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. God, some of us just need to be challenged. Lord, we've gotten too comfortable in the way that life used to be. And Lord, we need for Your Word and Your Spirit to speak to us, to challenge us, to be bold and courageous in these times. Lord, all of this is possible through Your Spirit speaking through Your Word. So we ask that You might be present with us wherever we are, here in this sanctuary, Lord, in the homes all throughout, wherever everybody's watching, Lord. God, I pray that You help us to devote all of our attention and affection to You in these moments. We ask these things in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. If you have your Bible with you, I encourage you to take it and turn with me once again to the Gospel of Matthew. That's the first book of the New Testament. If you're unfamiliar, you can turn to the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 16 once again this morning. We'll be finishing up Matthew chapter 16. If you were able to participate last week, then you may be aware that we stopped at Matthew chapter 16 verse 12. And so this morning we'll be picking up at Matthew chapter 16 verse 13 through verse 28. If you don't have a copy of Scripture, you're free to use your phone or your tablet, or maybe you can see the, the words on the screens over my shoulder. Whatever method that you use is perfectly fine. But I would encourage you, if you don't have a copy of God's Word, we have a surplus here at Bethany Baptist Church. Please contact us and let us know. Send an email to office at Bethany Andalusia. Give a phone call to 334 222 5551, and we will get a copy of God's Word to you by whatever means necessary because what I have to say this morning pales in comparison to what the Word of God has to say to us. And I pray, just as I prayed, that it will be the Word of the Lord that speaks to us and not me this morning. So, as you find your place in sacred Scripture, if you are physically able, whether you're at home or whether you're here, would you please stand out of reverence? 
to the public reading of God's holy word. We'll read from chapter 16, verse 13 through verse 28. Once we have completed, I will say this is the word of the Lord, and I encourage you again, wherever you are, to express gratitude to the Lord by saying thanks be to God. The word of the Lord says, Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So last week, Jesus is walking with the disciples. He has had a dispute with the scribes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees. The Pharisees and the Sadducees have teamed up against Jesus to try and ask for a sign that they might tempt Jesus, that they might test Jesus in the same way that Satan tempted and tested Jesus after he had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. After they leave that, the disciples begin to speak to one another about bread because Jesus said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. You see, the Pharisees and Sadducees missed what it meant for Jesus to be the Messiah. They missed who he really was. And likewise, His disciples constantly misunderstood who Jesus 
was and what he was saying. Now, Jesus often would take time to explain to the disciples what he meant. And this is one of those times. Jesus says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And the disciples begin to mutter and murmur among themselves, well, we didn't bring any bread. Jesus wasn't talking about whether or not they had bread. He was talking about the teachings of the scribes and the Pharisees. So it leads us directly into our next section as we begin in chapter, thir- in chapter 16, verse 13. As they're traveling, Jesus goes to the district of Caesarea Philippi. The fact that they're in Caesarea Philippi is significant because this is a hot spot of pagan worship. Probably not too long before Jesus and his disciples come to this place, it was a city under a different name dedicated to the pagan god known as Pan. So there's multiple gods that have been worshipped here. And Philip the Tetrarch, who's related to Herod the Great, Herod the Great during the time that Jesus is born, so Philip the Tetrarch renames this place Caesarea Philippi to honor Caesar Augustus and himself and erects a temple to them in that place. So it's not only that they've worshipped other pagan gods. It's not just that they've worshipped Greek gods. It's not just that they've worshipped Roman gods. But now they are also worshipping in the temples that exist there at Caesarea Philippi, the emperor himself and the Tetrarch, the one who's kind of their governor over their area. So this is a, this is a place fraught with an identity crisis. These people don't know who they're worshiping. They don't know when they're worshiping. And they're worshiping everybody under the sun except for the son of the living God. So Jesus strategically picks this place as a place to ask this question. There's also a unique component to Caesarea Philippi because in this place, there was a place that was known as the gates of Hades because it was a deep, dark tunnel that people believed led to the very gates of hell, led to the very gates of Hades. There was also some chemical stuff that was happening that made some bad smells come up out of this pit, and it all lined up for them. This it must be one of the places that you can enter into the realm of Hades. So there's multiple gods being worshipped. There's an entrance to Hades supposed to be in this place. This is a very strategic location for Jesus. And he looks at his disciples and says, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And then they begin to offer up all sorts of answers. Because that's what people were saying about Jesus. People were casting aside traditional Jewish beliefs that there is no reincarnation and thinking that John the Baptist was reincarnated in Jesus. Thinking that people like Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the other prophets was reincarnated in Jesus. Jesus is not surprised by these answers. He he knows that that's what people are saying about him. His goal here is to clarify for the disciples who he really is. And that's tied directly to the end of this passage. Jesus clarifies who he is, but then he also clarifies what that means. So he wants for the disciples to grasp that he is the Messiah, the son of the living God. He is the anointed one. That's all that... Christ or Messiah means. He is the set apart one. He is the special root of the seed of David. He is the anointed one who God has sent. But that may not mean exactly what they thought 
that it meant. So, as he says, all right, well, that's what everybody else says. What do you, what do you guys say? Who do you say that I am? And Simon responds boldly, jumps out first, as, as he often does, is the speaker representative of the other apostles. You've got to love Peter for some of these things because he's always willing to either be made a fool of or to follow Jesus no matter the cost in certain circumstances. When Jesus says, come to me on the water, Peter's the only one that immediately jumps out of the boat and starts walking to Jesus. He may falter, he may fail, but Peter's going to be the one who's itching to pull the trigger, all right? He's going to shoot first and ask questions later, and he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And this answer, this reply from Jesus is in Aramaic, and it's, it's incredible the strategy that Jesus uses. No words are wasted by our Savior. Jesus says what he says on purpose and for a purpose every time. And he says these Aramaic words, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. So in Aramaic, that, that means blessed, happy, content are you, Simon, son of Jonah. There's a direct reference to Simon's physical, earthly father. Because this answer does not come from his physical, earthly father. There's also a misinterpretation here, a misunderstanding that Jesus is blessing Simon for this answer. Don't take that first word as blessed in a blessing that is passed on, as in I lay my hands on you and bless you. It is an acknowledgement of the blessing that is already there. Simon, you are blessed because this is something that has been revealed to you, not by your fleshly, earthly father, but by your heavenly father. And now we, we hit verse 18. And verse 18 is probably one of the most controversial um, statements in all of Scripture because our Catholic brothers and sisters have traditionally and historically interpreted this passage to give Peter the authority to be the first pope and his successor be the second pope, to add specific authority to Peter as the leader and head of the universal church. So every pope can trace their lineage and succession back to the apostolic teaching and leadership of Peter, and they base that strongly, heavily upon this verse. You are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. Folks, his name is Peter, and the word Petros is rock. So Jesus is doing a little play on words here. But remember, nothing that Jesus says is wasted. None of his words are haphazard. He says, you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church. So there's three different ways to take this. All right, you, you can either mean... Peter himself, like the Catholic brothers and sisters we have take this, you can mean Peter's confession of who Christ is, or you can mean Christ and his teaching. Folks, I think the safest place to land in this passage is it's some combination of Peter himself, but not to the degree that Catholic believers would take it, not to confer some special authority on Peter to be the Pope, the first Pope himself. If that were the case, I feel very confident that Peter would have written more of the New Testament. If that were the case, I feel very confident that Peter would have had a much more prominent role in the early church. 
And Peter himself is submissive to the authority of the church. There are examples all through the book of Acts where Peter is sent by others to go and proclaim the gospel. He doesn't go in and of himself. He doesn't walk into the meeting and say, I am in charge. My name is Peter. I'm the rock. Okay. And the rock that the church is going to be built on is me. And so I'm going to Samaria. All right. Now I'm going to Antioch and you guys better support me. And what's happening because I'm Peter and I said so. We don't see that in the book of Acts. We don't see Peter acting that way. Even in the Jerusalem council where they're talking about what the Gentiles are going to be required to do. Do Gentiles have to be circumcised? Do they have to become Jews? You see James, the brother of Jesus, in a distinctive role of leadership over that council and not Peter. In Galatians, we have records in Acts and Galatians of Paul correcting Peter. Paul, an abnormally born apostle. He was not one that walked with Jesus while Jesus was alive, but Jesus appeared to him later. Paul describes himself as one abnormally born, and yet Paul corrects Peter. If this was conferring some special authority on Peter and Peter alone, the rest of the Bible did not get that message. So I believe that Peter is important as he proclaims that message. That the church would be built on the proclamation of Christ as the Messiah, as the anointed one, as the son of the living God. But Peter is not set aside to some special place of leadership that only his successors can reach or attain. But Jesus says, Peter, you're going to tell people that message. You're going to share that hope. And then your brothers in the other disciples, the other apostles, the group of the twelve, they're going to get it and they're going to start sharing it. And that's the rock on which the church, the ecclesia, the assembly will be built upon. And Jesus is forecasting and foreshadowing the church, who we are today, where we are today. He's forecasting that there will be a church that follows him even after his death. And so even though this is a, a, a very contentious passage, we see that, that Peter is, is not the focus. Peter's not the focal point. The focal point is Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Peter says the living God, and that's absolutely essential given all of the dead gods that there are statues and temples built in honor of in that city, in that very place. But we'll see in just a moment, even Peter is going to mess up almost immediately. He gets out of the boat and he's walking on the water and he begins to sink. He confesses that Jesus is the Christ, the set apart one, the anointed one, the son of the only living God. And yet in just a moment, he has the wrong understanding of what that means. So yes, we need to acknowledge that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. He is the anointed one and the Messiah. But that doesn't mean what everybody in Jerusalem thought that it meant. And so as the verses continue, Jesus says that the gates of hell will not triumph over His kingdom. I want you to hold your place there because we're coming back to that. We're coming back to that. In verse 19, He begins to talk to Peter about the keys of of the kingdom that all that the church binds will be bound all that the church looses will be bound 
In Acts, Peter is the first to preach the message of the kingdom to the Jews at Pentecost. Then to the Samaritans, like we talked about in Acts 8. And then to the Gentiles in Acts 10. The reason that Jesus says that Peter's going to play this pivotal role and the keys have been given to him and his brothers, the other apostles, is because Peter is going to be the tip of the spear going out, proclaiming on Pentecost, going to the Samaritans, going to the Gentiles. So that all of the discipline concerning what is right and what is wrong conduct for the kingdom has been given to the church as a whole. Folks, it's not for us as individuals to decide this is right and this is wrong. This is what the kingdom of God looks like and this is what it does not look like. This is the kind of conduct that a Christian has and this is the kind of conduct a Christian does not have. Those keys are given to the church. This isn't talking about Peter sitting at the pearly white gates, waiting on people and saying, looking for their name, and he's the one that holds the keys to the gate. This is talking about the keys of the kingdom are given to the church to exercise discipline, to call out what is not true and focus on what is true so that we all have an understanding that Jesus is the Christ and what that means. So then... Beginning in verse 20, Jesus warns his disciples to tell anybody that he's the Christ. There's all this excitement. Peter, you made a great confession. This is awesome. You've done fantastic. Now, don't tell a soul. All right? You got it right. I am Jesus. I'm the son of the living God. I'm the Messiah. When he talks about himself as the son of man, he's talking about a reference to Daniel chapter 7, that he is the Messiah, the one who was foretold. But don't tell anybody. Just, just keep that a secret. That's just between us. Because of what happens next, as we proceed in these verses, even those 12 disciples, even those 12 apostles misunderstand completely what it means that Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed one. So if they were to go around and start telling everybody, this is Jesus, the son of the living God, he is the Messiah, trust in him. People are going to expect that we're about to overthrow the Roman Empire. We're about to cast off the shackles of government and we're about to set up a theocracy where Jesus is the king and he will rule and he will reign and y'all get on board. Let's take up our swords and overthrow the world. That's not what Jesus was about. And Jesus knew if you start talking this way, if you start using these words now, people are not going to understand what they really mean and they're going to take a complete wrong road. So then in verse 21, he begins to reveal the true nature of what it means to be the Messiah. He says that there is a sacrifice, that there is suffering, that he must go to Jerusalem and face the cross, be persecuted by the elders and the scribes and the chief priests. And as he's explaining what it means to be the Messiah, Peter does something that is absolutely unheard of in the relationship between a rabbi and his disciples. In the midst of the culture in which Jesus lived, you never took your teacher aside for anything, especially not a rebuke or a scold or a reprimand. I know that today, you know, we, we've, we've pushed out a lot of discipline and punishment. And kids can get away with saying almost anything to their teacher. And sometimes they get punishment, sometimes they don't. Sometimes that punishment is delayed, even in our criminal justice system, it is 
far delayed, you may commit a crime and be convicted of it three, four, five years later before the trial actually happens and everything is put to rest. But in this society, responses were immediate. And everybody understood, you do not talk back to your teacher. Period. This is the person you've given up your livelihood. You gave up your fishing business to follow. It's not your place or your right to ever pull your teacher aside, whoever it may be, and say, hey, you're kind of confused right now. Stop talking that way. You, you have to understand, Peter rebuked Jesus. It's not, hey, Jesus, um, listen, you're saying some stuff that I don't, I don't necessarily think is right. And maybe, I mean, just think through now, whatever you want to do, because you're Jesus, you know. Maybe you don't want to say those kind of things. When the Bible says that Peter pulls him aside and says, Far be it from you, Lord. Hush, Jesus. Don't say that kind of stuff. That's not happening to you. Remember, you're the Christ. Don't you understand, Jesus? Literally, Peter is saying, don't you understand Jesus? So Jesus' rebuke back to Peter is more than called for. Jesus is still gracious and merciful in the way that he corrects Peter. Because just as quickly as Peter was pronouncing that Jesus is the Messiah, he's now become in league with the accuser, denying that Jesus must suffer and be killed and be crucified. You see, in, in God's economy, the way that God works is so counterintuitive to, way that, to the way that we think and we work. We have to conquer. We have to overcome. We have to win victoriously. But time and time again in Scripture, the disciples are taught. The disciples have to learn. The early church has to learn. We have to learn from seeing it that you lose your life to gain it. You don't pound people into the dust. You lose your life to gain it. You give up to gain. It doesn't seem to make sense. And it's counterintuitive to everything that we're taught, especially as Americans. If you want it, go grab it. It's yours. Get it and take it. It's your freedom. It's your right. Go get it. Go do it. And Jesus says, if you want it, you've got to let go of it. If you want it, you've got to lose it. You've got to lay down your life. And Peter says, Jesus, you ain't never going to lay down your life. Maybe he used bad grammar like that. I don't know. But he said a rebuke to Jesus. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. One of the most serious and stern rebukes that Jesus gives, aside from some of the other ones that he gives to the scribes and Pharisees. And in a moment, Jesus has praised Simon Peter, the rock. You're going to have a special role in the growth of the church. You're going to have a special role in establishing my people. And God has given you this message. Now, Peter, you got all high and mighty and proud and arrogant of yourself. And you thought, ah, now that, I, now that God has given me the message of who Jesus is, I have the right to tell Jesus what to do. And Jesus has to knock him back down a few pegs. Folks, I, I don't know about you guys, but there have been times in my life where I've been guilty of acting like Peter and scolding Jesus in my prayers and telling Jesus, this is, this, no, 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 no you, you, you don't seem to understand, Lord. This is how it's going to go. This is how my life is going to be. And this is how comfortable and convenient I need for my arrangement to be. And you need to make that happen because that's what you've promised to me. And Jesus 
has never promised that to any of us. It's just what Jake preached Wednesday night. Jesus is the treasure. He has promised us Himself and nothing more. He's actually told us the exact opposite. That if you would follow Him, look what He says after He rebukes Simon. He says you must take up your cross. Crucifixion was a shocking metaphor for discipleship. A disciple must die to himself or herself, die to our will, take up our cross and embrace God's will no matter the cost and follow Christ. Take up your execution chair. Take up your lethal injection. Take up your noose. Take up your guillotine. Take up the double-headed axe that will behead you. Be willing to be executed from day one. From the get-go, you've got to understand, I've got to understand that we gave up our life the moment we trusted Jesus. That's important for two reasons. One, we need to constantly be reminded our life is not our own. Secondly, if you've never actually given up your life, if you're in some sort of, I'm following Jesus, but I'm not really following Jesus, I... You know, I mean, I say I'm a Christian, but I'm not really serious about it. I don't really tell anybody about Jesus. I don't really share the gospel message. I'm following what Jesus just told his disciples. Shh! Don't tell anybody. Y'all can keep following me, but don't say nothing. That's me. See, I'm still a follower. I'm still good. Jesus begins to teach his disciples, and through the centuries teaches us that if we want to save our life, we have to. To lose it. We have to be willing to lay everything down. And that's not just a metaphor. It's not just a figure of speech. It is giving everything to Jesus. And trusting that He holds our life in His hands. And sometimes I wonder, how many of us have really done that? How many of us have really given Him everything? And lost our life for the sake of gaining Him. Whoever would lose their life would save it. For what does it profit somebody if they gain the whole world and forfeit their soul? What can you buy for your soul? You could be the richest man. You could be Jeff Bezos before he got divorced. You could have more money than some countries. You could be in power. You could be President Trump. You could be Vladimir Putin and just made sure you could never be kicked out of the country as a president. Whatever your position of power or authority, if you have not given up your life for Jesus, you've got nothing. You have nothing. If I have not given up my life for Jesus, I have nothing. It profits us zero to gain everything this world has to offer, but to lose our soul in the process. It's not about how many toys we can accumulate. It's not about how secure we can be in our job. It's not about how many weeks of unemployment we can have. We have to understand that God is the one who is always going to be the provider. Whether our 401k is doing fantastic or whether we have no money to retire. Whether we got to go find a job and there's no jobs to be had. We have to understand our life is in His hands. 
whether our family is in the ICU fighting coronavirus, whether we're worried about the immunocompromised people around us or compromised immunities of our family, of our loved ones, of our friends, whether we're worried about maybe I've been in contact with somebody who has COVID. This isn't my life at all. It's not mine to worry about. I gave my life to Jesus and it's his now. So if he wants to take me out of this world through COVID, if he wants to take me out of this world through starvation, if he wants to take me out of this world by sending me somewhere and persecuting me and making me a martyr, my life belongs to him. And I've got to be willing to go out however he says to stay in as long as he says. The Bible tells us that before ever one of our days came to be, every single one of them was ordained. That every hair on our head is numbered. Jesus knows and cares deeply about us. But sometimes we're so concerned about our safety and our security and our comforts and our convenience that we forget that the call was to lay down our lives. We are already dead. And we think, we forget, and we like to pick our life back up and say it's mine. I like to pick my life back up and say, man, Jesus, I like this thing or I like that thing or I want to do this or this would make me comfortable. Jesus is saying it's not about what makes you happy. It's not about what makes you comfortable. It's about what makes you holy before God the Father. Folks, if we don't think that God is using this to remind us of what is essential and what is not, then I think we're blind. If we're not reading into these passages that our lives were already forfeit, And if they're not, and we're trying to gain the world, then they're forfeit in an awful way. And Jesus continues as He he speaks and gives these hard teachings to the disciples. He says that some of those standing there listening to Him, some that are there in Caesarea Philippi, would live to see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Now because it talks about angels, and talks about Him coming, and talks about giving an account for all of the things that we have done and talk about repaying those who are wrongdoers, it makes us most of the time in a modern context think that Jesus is referring to his second coming, but that's probably not what he's talking about. It's probably not when what we sang about on just a moment ago from It Is Well With Our Souls, when the clouds will be rolled back like a scroll, that the trump will resound, that the Lord will descend, even so, even so. Praise the Lord. Bring it on. Oh, my soul. So, that's probably not what Jesus is talking about. He's probably referring to one of a couple different things, or maybe a few things all rolled in. It could be that he's talking about his transfiguration. That's going to be just in the next chapter. That some of them will see him transfigured in a glorious state. Could be talking about when he ascends to heaven and they see him in a glorious state. But I am convinced that what the Bible tells us about Jesus coming into his kingdom consistently follows what he just taught the disciples about taking up their cross, laying down their life and following him. Look with me at a few other passages briefly. In Matthew chapter 20, verses 20 to 28, Matthew chapter 20, verses 20 to 28. All right, just a few pages over in your text. Just scroll down a little bit further on your iPad or your phone. All right, Matthew 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee, this is Matthew 20, verse 20, came up to him with her sons. 
And kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, well, what do you want? And she said to him, say that, that these two sons of mine, that they're to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. And Jesus answered, woman, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? Jesus said. And they said to him, James and John, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup. But to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant. But it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first must be your slave even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give His life as a ransom for many. As Jesus talks about coming into His kingdom in this passage, He's talking about the thief that's on the cross to His right and the thief that is on the cross to His left. He says, James and John, you will drink of the cup that I have to drink. You will suffer the way that I will have to suffer, but you're not going to do it at the time and in the place that you're thinking. You're thinking of this majestic, glorious, light-filled ceremony where I'm descending from the clouds and there's angels all around me and the glory of the Lord shines about me, but I'm talking about dying a miserable, long-suffering death on a cross. And I don't think you're ready to drink that cup. And he continues to reiterate what he's already taught here in chapter 16. And then to reinforce that, we go to that scene on the cross. Go with me to Luke chapter 23. Verses 39 through 43. Luke chapter 23. We're going to begin in verse 39. This is the point where Jesus is hanging on the cross. There is a criminal to his right. There is a criminal to his left. And in verse 39, one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God? Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, and we justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. When this thief on the cross asks to be remembered as Jesus comes into his kingdom, Jesus says, we're on the way right now. I'm telling you today, you will be with me in paradise. I'm telling you that you're a part of coming of the kingdom because the coming of the kingdom is the death and the burial and the resurrection. That's what Scripture directs us to in the Gospels. And all of us want to think immediately of the glory and the fame and the honor and all of the prestige and all of the angels and all of the Shekinah glory around Him and the trumpets. Jesus is coming! But Jesus is talking about dying. Jesus is talking about taking up our cross and laying down our lives in the same way. His kingdom came through His death. But remember, I said hold on to a place. Go back to Matthew chapter 16. Go back with me to Matthew chapter 16. Remember what he tells Peter. 
Verse 18, I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. Folks, sometimes we look at this verse and we like to think all about the Shekinah glory and the angels descending and the trumpet resounding and that's how the church will conquer. But Jesus said that His gospel and His kingdom is advanced by people taking up their cross and laying down their life fearlessly because the gates of hell will never triumph. Don't think of that as an offensive from the dominion of hell. Gates are not offensive weapons. Gates are defensive weapons to fortify cities. And when we lay down our life and we take up our cross, I want you to picture in your mind a battering ram charging against the gates of a fortified city. And those gates are closed up tight. And as we lay down our lives for Christ, boom! All the way in and the doors start to crack. And the, the demons and all of Satan's forces rush to prop up the doors and rush to reinforce the gates. And they're doing everything that they can to hold back the army and the people of the Lord. And then more people begin to realize what's important in life. And they lay down their life for Christ. And boom! The battering ram slams into the door. And it's cracked now. And there's breaches. And people are reaching through. And the demons have no idea what to do. And they scatter and they run because the gates cannot stand against the people of God. And that battering ram will charge through as we lay down our life and take up our cross. And it looks like we're losing. But while it looks like we're losing, the gates of hell are falling. And you believe that and trust that this morning. If you lay down your life for Jesus Christ, it destroys the gates of hell itself. And as Jesus said this, the metaphorical, the figurative thought gates of Hades are in the background behind him. And he's telling his disciples, those gates right there, they can't triumph over my church. People will lay down their lives and I will rescue them. Folks, sometimes trusting in Jesus is hard. And it's not fun. And you don't get wealthy. You don't get famous. Sometimes you lay down your life. But when we lay down our life, it destroys the gates of hell. So this, this morning, I just, I just want to ask, are we willing as a church, as a people, to lay down our lives so that the gates might be brought down? Are we willing to do whatever it takes to reach this world that is in crisis mode, that is panicked and scared and doesn't know where to turn, can we be the ones willing to take up our cross, willing to follow Jesus at any cost, at every cost, at the ultimate cost, knowing that whoever loses their life for the sake of Jesus will find it. Knowing that there is no other way. The only way forward is laying down our life for the sake of Jesus Christ sacrificing what we believe to be our rights, our guarantees, our privileges, our comforts, our conveniences, so that we might advance the gospel by any means necessary. Folks, preparing for this sermon this week, I, I had to ask myself, is that the kind of Christian that I am? 
And I hope that you'll take just a few moments here. Ask yourselves that same question. Is that what we're doing? What does that look like in our lives today? How can we once again remember to take up our cross, deny ourselves, and follow Jesus? Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, you are good. Even when the world is crazy, you are good. And you are merciful. And you are kind. And you are faithful. Lord, you have told us in spirit and in truth that if we are willing to take up our cross and lose our life for your sake, we will find it. Lord, I pray that there are those hearing my voice right now that maybe, maybe realize for the first time that they've just been playing Christian. Father, maybe there are those who haven't even been playing Christian, but that they realize in this very moment that they need to give up their life, that they need to begin trusting in You. Father, You, you know how I feel about decision-driven evangelism and all that stuff, Lord, but Lord, I feel like I would be remiss if we didn't offer those people a chance to accept You. And so, Lord, right now, Father, I pray that Your Spirit would drive us to our knees. God, that if we need to take up our cross and we need to follow You, Lord, that, God, we would kneel before You wherever we are and say, Jesus, my life is Yours. I lay down my cross. I deny myself. And I follow You and You alone. You're my only hope, Jesus. Would You be my Lord? Would You be my Savior? Would You change my heart? Would You help me to find my life as I lose it in You? God, I pray that Your Spirit would move and do that among us this morning. Cause us to fall to our knees in desperation for You. Asking that You would take our life as our humble offering to You, that we might go wherever You say to go, that we might do whatever You tell us to do. No matter how crazy people think we are, no matter, no matter what that means, that we would be willing to take up our cross every day, deny ourselves and follow You. God, if, if there are those who are praying that for the first time, I pray, God, You would cause them to reach out to their local church or here to Bethany. Have them call us. Have them comment on Facebook. Have them send us an email that says, I trust in Jesus. Now what? Lord, help us as Your church to respond in love and obedience and to begin discipling and loving Your children way that you have loved us. God, we ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.